This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Welcome to the Science of Sex. I'm Joe Partavilla, and that is Dr. Jean over there. And we're about to pop your cherry, aren't we? Oh, yeah. I love popping cherries. <laughs> Our very first episode. So, Dr. Jean, how would you describe what this podcast is all about? Because you, you're a smart person. You're college educated. You're a professor. And I'm not. Yeah, you're ours. the college dropout, <laughs> yeah. and I'm the PhD and in, in sex. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you can be a college dropout in sex, but... Um, <laughs> well, it means you're bad at it, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope that's not the case. But yeah, <laughs> I do have a PhD in sort of in sexuality and developmental psychology from Cornell University, but I've studied sexuality, especially casual sex, non-monogamy, and sexual orientation. And I'm also really passionate about bringing sex science, sex information, accurate sex information to general audiences. And I've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time where we talk about things that are happening in the world of sex science, sex research, because there's a lot of that happening out there in the academic world. And we're going to try in this podcast to bring some of that, some of the most fascinating and interesting stuff uh, going on to our listeners. Cool. And, you know, we're going to cover a bunch of topics, but we're going to do a deep dive every week. So what are we doing a deep dive on this week? We have Dr. Brian Dodge at Indiana University to talk to us about one of his studies that is quite revolutionary because it gives us for the first time in history of America, in the history of America, we have the percentage of Americans who've engaged in a whole range of sexual behaviors, including lots of, uh, you know, kinky and group sex and stuff that we don't normally ask about people. And we also have the percentage of Americans who'd like to engage in said behaviors. All right, then let's get it on. The Science of Sex Foreplay Like any good sex, you gotta warm up a little bit So, quick rundown of what's going on in the world of sex right now Some good news, Saudi Arabia finally allows women to drive So they don't need a driver to leave the house Which is the last country on the planet, right? To not allow women to drive Finally, they Mm -hmm. can drive there Yeah, I mean, in 2015, they were finally allowed to vote and wow. even run for local elections for the first time, but they couldn't get themselves to the polls themselves. Wow. <laughs> so, woohoo! Finally. <laughs> well, speaking of woohoo, a guy screamed woohoo when he fractured his penis during sex and noticed 12 hours later. I didn't even know this was a thing. I thought it was an urban legend, but reading about it, have you heard about guys fracturing their penis of before? Of course, of course. Yes, it, it is a real thing. Now, when people hear fracture, they think a bone. Right. And despite the fact that we're calling it a boner, there are no bones. <laughs> in the penis. However, it can fracture. And what it really is, is the tissue that surrounds the erectile tissue. So the penis has like three cylinders Mm -hmm. that fill up with blood when the penis gets erect. And those three cylinders have this little skin that kind of surrounds them. And that can tear, basically. And blood kind of rushes in that area. And then it gets like all eggplanty. Oh, geez. Yeah. And the scary part of this story, Dr. Jean, is the fact that he did it and then didn't notice it till 12 hours later. So he didn't, it's not like he stopped and it's like, "Uh uh-oh, something went wrong we need to stop what we're doing right now he continued what he was in the middle of whatever it was and then went on with it that's a little surprising because usually it will be very 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 painful when that happens and you will immediately you know feel it and stop and be like okay something bad happened so i'm surprised i don't know maybe he was really into it he he did say it was his new girlfriend so oh so you know maybe he was overcompensating maybe he was in a lot of pain but he's like you know what i'm gonna muscle through this literally (laughs) but you know it's a real issue and it should be addressed 
immediately, you know, there's not surgical, 12 hours later, not 12. <laughs> yeah. Don't wait. The longer you wait, the worse it probably is going to get. So, yeah. What's your take on dating apps? There's so many of them now. There's one called Threesomer. And as you can imagine, it's for threesomes. And they came up with the top 10 states where people are having threesomes. And the list is kind of surprising. You know, obviously you got California, New York, but I didn't realize Texas is in the top 10. Do you think it's all like just in Dallas and Austin and the and rest Houston. of the state? Houston's probably doing it. Actually, Texas has been kind of uh, n- notoriously famous or infamous for swingers in, oh. in that state. And, you know, a lot of the southern states, even though we might not think of them as, you know, these most sexually liberated, there's a lot of that going on. And in fact, Georgia, yeah. North Carolina, Ohio, also down south or Florida, yeah, they're all in the top 10 together with Cali, New York, Jersey, Pennsylvania, which you might think of a little more on the liberal end. Hey, give, him, give him props <laughs> to my home state of New Jersey, representing. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> now, of course, this is a, a, a survey done by the Threesomer app themselves. So who knows, you know, how accurate this is in the Wait a minute. You don't think they have a, a fleet of scientists behind the scenes at Three Summer <laughs> putting this whole thing together? I have no idea. <laughs> but I doubt they have a nationally representative sample of American adults like the study that we're just going to talk about next. The Science of Sex Goes Deeper. So in July 2017, the journal Plus One published a study called Sexual Diversity in the United States Results from a Nationally Representative Probability Sample of Adult Women and Men. And this was a survey of over 2,000 adults, about half of them women ages 18 and over, that was representative of the entire non-institutionalized U.S. population and asked people about whether they've engaged in 30-plus sexual behaviors and how appealing they found 50-plus various sexual acts. So this is an absolute treasure trove of information with pretty straightforward and easy to read tables. And here's the best part. It's not behind a paywall. It's freely available online for anyone to access. And today in the studio here with us to discuss this study, we have Dr. Brian Dodge at Indiana University, who's one of the lead researchers on this project. Hi, Dr. Dodge. Hi, John. How how are you? I'm very excited. Me too. Uh, Now, that was a mouthful, the title of this whole survey. (laughs) You couldn't come up with a little snappier, Dr. Dodge? We just call it the sexual diversity study. Okay, good. That yeah. works for me. That's, that's easier. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so when I saw this study, I got super excited. I got like giddy like a schoolgirl because I think of it as pretty revolutionary because yeah. this is the first time in U.S. history, if I'm not mistaken, that we have data that's nationally representative about a very wide range of sexual behaviors. Yeah. And I think this has built on a line of work that we've been doing uh, our Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University now since around 2008. And I do want to just take a moment to give a quick shout out to Dr. Debbie Herbenick, who's really the lead with all of this national probability research that that we've been fortunate to do. And, And we're taking it in some new and exciting ways, too. Starting in 2008, we did a wave of national probability data collection, looking specifically at vibrator use. Uh, in the United States, and then followed that in 2009 with with a large sample, about 5,885, I think, adults, and and also some 14 to 17 year olds. Uh, so the the sample was 14 to 94 years old, and that was really our first big uh, wave of of data collection for the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior. But and all of these previous studies have asked only about uh, sort of 
it's the, the, the more typical, it, the more common sexual behaviors, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. We it, because each year subsequently after that too has taken on sort of a different focus. One year we had an oversample of lesbian, gay, bisexual identified people. One year we focused on lubricant use, you know, sort of themes. And so we one of the the challenges of nationally representative sampling and working with knowledge panel is that it's very costly and mm-hmm. adds up very quickly. And we've been fortunate to have a an academic corporate partnership with Church and Dwight, which is the parent company of Trojan Condoms, which has been funding this work for nearly a decade now. And, and it's work that I don't think would have been funded by the feds initially, <laughs> although we've now got NIH funding using Knowledge Panel too. So I think it's a it's a great example of, of how to sort of incubate something and, and look at different models of funding. So let's talk about it because this is a huge <laughs> sample side. You didn't, you didn't go down to the mall with a paperclip and ask these people questions. How many people were involved in this study? So in the sexual diversity study, about 2,000 wow. people almost equally split between men and women. We had chatted a little bit just about gender non-binary and, mm-hmm. and, and gender diversity. Yeah, where are the gender we're non-binary very, people here? So we're very aware of that. The, the issue is that with Knowledge Panel, it's based on, their sampling frame is based on the demographics of the United States as captured in the monthly census data. And right now, I think one of the real challenges is that the census doesn't track gender identities other than man and women. And so we don't even have accurate estimates of what the size of that population is. So it's hard to systematically recruit them into panels when we don't even really know where to start and what to look for. Encouragingly, though, the GFK company that uh, maintains the knowledge panel, they are looking at how to engage a transgender panel. And we always, in in our studies, have a small number of transgender, gender non-binary people, but it usually ends up being, again, out of 2,000, it might be 5, 10. So not enough to analyze that. enough to, to, to analyze separately. And I think it's just another example of how maybe at this time, national probability sampling may not be the best way to reach that population, mm-hmm. but there are certainly other ways to reach those populations. And we should definitely be exploring these issues in, within those groups too. But right now we have information on what American men are doing, yes. what American women are doing, yes. cisgender people. And as far as we know, we, we don't ask if they're cisgender or transgender. Oh, so some of those 2000 could be Yes, exactly, exactly. As long as they identified as a man or a woman. Yes, exactly. So it's really the non-binary group that we're not capturing yet. And so now we have information about everything, not just (laughs) vaginal sex or oral sex or masturbation, which are things that we have asked before. But now we have information on threesomes and anal and uh, sex toys and vibrators and... Playful whipping. Playful whipping, right. Spanking, BDSM Mm -hmm. uh, party attendance. So walk us through this, though. So (laughs) No, not literally. Each of those? No, no, no. no. Yeah, we can't talk about all of them because we'll stay here for a very, very long time. No, so we have the 2,000 people. How does the survey begin with with one one person at a time? Like, what are they doing? So now one of the real benefits of being part of the knowledge panel is that... What is knowledge panel? So we're talking about getting this nationally representative sample through knowledge panel. So help our listeners understand what that is and how you got the sample. So it's a large panel of about 75,000 participants, and it maintained and and weighted to the, the monthly census updates in terms of the demographics of the United States. And, you know, my own line of work is primarily, you know, much more traditional 
additionally sort of HIV risk, sexual risk and bisexual men. And it really wasn't until we started working with these probability samples and I was seeing those probability samples, for example, of bisexual men and how different they were than the guys that we were recruiting, mm-hmm. you know, in the community, various sort of the spaces, community. right? Well, not even just LGBT because they're, they're less likely to be there, but, you know, sexual cruising areas or, mm-hmm. or just more general community or definitely clinics, you're going to find higher levels of risk for someone who's going into a clinic. Right, so, so when you see these people in the general population, they're more sort of like your Aussie and Harriet bisexual people <laughs> that, you know, just. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's really important to remember. That's why having these nationally representative groups of people, set yeah. samples are so important as opposed to, you know, yeah. your college student population or as right. Joe was saying, you know, the clipboard at a mall. Yeah, right. <laughs> but 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 for certain populations, that, that still may be the way to go right. for just as we were saying, that for, for special populations mm-hmm. for now until we have a systematic way to recruit people. So there's a lot of things you ask people. How long does it take one person to fill out one of these surveys? Because just looking at it, it's, it's tonnage there. Isn't it? And, yeah. And it's amazing because we usually try and get everything down to within 30 minutes. That's okay. kind of the goal. So that's number. how long one of these surveys took one mm-hmm. one of these people in the survey. Okay, great. Be- because, and, and we pilot test them with GFK, the company that, that does the actual sampling, even a minute over in terms of the average that it takes participants can end up costing hundreds and thousands of dollars. And so we have to be really careful, (laughs) which is part of the reason with when, you know, we're asking about specific behaviors, there were more behaviors that we wanted to include. But I think we have to keep it within the the realistic confines of what we're able to to get done. Mm-hmm. And so Debbie w- worked closely with a panel of uh, masters and doctoral students who had experience, personal and, and, and research with working, for example, in kink communities. Mm-hmm. And so, so it was really kind of generating all of these different behaviors that aren't commonly asked about. And then from those kind of making some tough choices sometimes right. because, because we can't ask about mm-hmm. everything in one survey, although there's yeah. certainly options for future surveys. You know, we all have our favorite sort of pet areas and there were items <laughs> I would have loved to include. And then there are some that I thought, well, huh? Why are we that asking really this? Right, right, right. But then somebody else thinks just, the opposite. Just for example, yeah. sexually explicit magazines. I looked mm-hmm. at that item and I thought, does anyone read those anymore <laughs> with the internet? But it's actually interesting to get a baseline rate of mm-hmm. how many sure. people are still using right, sexually right. explicit magazines. magazines. You cast such a wide net. How do you know? How did you get down to that? Like uh, with your subjects? You know, they, they're given the, after, of course, everyone goes through informed consent, which lays out exactly what they're going to be doing in the study. And we're always very clear and upfront. You know, it's kind of a balance of trying to create comfort with the participant, but also fully disclosing what they're going to be doing in the study and, and, and asking about. And and I do think another benefit of, of working with Knowledge Panel is that these people are accustomed to being on in research yes. studies. Oh. And so in, in including our research studies, they're probably like, oh, the Indiana sex people again. You know? <laughs> so so I but but I think the the potential, you know, for bias is hopefully less as it would be just, you know, 
know, kind of sending out something through the mail, for mm -hmm. example, blindly, where, where someone wasn't accustomed to doing these sorts of studies. Then they were just presented with the main things that we focused on in this study were the sexual behaviors, including that large list, and then also the recency, which is interesting because you see people tend to report more things they've done in their lifetime, but recently, it, again, it, it sort of comes back more down to the vanilla sorts of stuff. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah, whatever. Oh, I, I want to get into yes. the, the results more. But yes, you asked about in, lifetime, yes. if they've ever done it, if mm -hmm. they've done it in the past year, and if they've done it in the last month. Yes. So really, really get a sense of what yes. is the thing that people do the most on a regular yep. basis as opposed to once and then we had this great idea from one of the other large surveys about asking about appeal mm -hmm. and an appeal of engaging in behaviors. And that, that was where some of the stuff that I thought was most interesting came in. Yes. Um, so let's get into some yeah. of these yeah. findings a little bit. I mean, we can't obviously cover all of sure. it. And that's why people, if you're interested, go and find the study and those you tables. You can read the paper. Yeah, you yep. can read the paper. It's pretty straightforward. Yep. You know, one of the good things about a study like this, it's pretty simple, right? Yep. The, the results are like, this is how many or what percentage of people have done this or want to do this. So exactly. there's no some crazy stats that you know, you have to have years and years of. Yeah, really, the the only place that came in was where we looked at the relationship between having engaged in the behavior and the level of appeal of mm. that behavior. And maybe we can get into that. Yeah, too. yeah. But give us, I don't know, some some general patterns of what you found that you think is interesting. <sighs> so one finding that I think is very reassuring is that the rates for items that we ask about in the ongoing NSSHB and also in other sort of general surveys um, in terms of masturbation, vaginal sex, oral sex, anal sex, uh, mutual masturbation with a partner. All that, that one was a little different in the survey. But for those, they were very similar to rates that we find in other uh, probability studies. And so that that's reassuring in a way that, that we're sort of You're confirming. You're getting a sample exactly. that is not unusual exactly. in any way. In terms of the behaviors themselves, the, the sort of less commonly assessed behaviors, I think it was interesting that the most commonly reported behavior for women that isn't asked about often was dressing up for your partner in sexy lingerie. Mm -hmm. The m much lower rates for men, you know, unfortunately. <laughs> <surprising>, but, <laughs> but there's there was some. Lots of room for improvement there, guys. Right, exactly. <laughs> Pull out the lingerie. But but with men, there, there was something where 40-some percent of the sample talked about having some sex in some form of a public place, which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting because we've done studies with cruising, you know, with sort of gay and bisexual and other men who have sex with men. And I, I think it's very different. I think these are the guys who are in the car with their girlfriend, you know, right. that yeah. sort of the a thing. Beach. Right. right. Uh, yeah, exactly. The beach, the pool, that kind of mm. stuff. But Movie theater. So mm -hmm. so that was interesting. And then and then a lot of those very, you know, more specified items, the kink stuff, the BDSM stuff. We were most interested in that because of obviously Fifty Shades of Grey mm -hmm. and the the <laughs> dramatic impact culturally that that had and and uh, with just in the introduction of the paper you can read there were some interesting phenomena like so that's real the Fifty Shades effect is real because I'm uh, telling I'm, you you wonder if it, like Joe, pop culture takes over and then no, all of a sudden it, it, it is really there happening. have been there have been consumer studies these are cited in the paper where just for example sales of rope at hardware store went up wow after Fifty Shades right yeah, yeah. and uh, so. 
That scares me to a certain degree, though, Doctor, because in Fifty Shades, they know what they're doing, but a lot of these people don't know what they're well, doing. And, and Actually, that's why we're... Yeah, I, I, I think not, you know, they some of them could probably figure it out, but I do think that opens up a whole market for work that we have, you know, as, as health professionals. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. With, How to do these things safely exactly, and responsibly. And, exactly. You know. So what were the what were the, some of the numbers off the top of your head? Like how, so, what percentage generally of the population has engaged in some of these things like tying uh, up and spanking? And I'll see if I can pull up just because <laughs> I don't want to misquote anything, but but they're all in the paper. I do know that the spanking, the playful whipping, that sort of stuff hovered around, I think, like 10 percent, 10 to 20 percent. people ever having done them. Right. Here, it, actually, I, I have, you have them. them? Yeah. Good. 22% of men and 21% of women. So there are no big gender differences to some of yeah. these. Had tied up your, your partner or been tied up as part of sex. Yeah. And... And that could be just one time doing it, right? That's lifetime. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And most recently, well, let's say in the past year, only about 5%, 4 or 5% had, had done that in the past year. Yeah. So that's an example right there, too, of how the numbers shift substantially when you're talking about lifetime versus recent behavior. Same with playful whipping. About 15% of both genders said that they've done it yeah. ever. About 6% did it in the last year. Yeah. Spanking or being spanked. This seems to be the highest, like 30%, 30 yeah. to 34% had spanked yeah. or been spanked ever, yeah. about 15% in the last year. And what's really unfortunate is that we didn't have population level baseline rates for those behaviors before Fifty Pre Shades 50 of Grey. Shades. So it would be really <laughs> interesting. But now we can do that and it, when the next film comes out. And I, I think, too, the numbers with threesomes were sort of surprising to me that such a, a you know, sort of almost double the number of men reported reported engaging in threesomes and women. I mm -hmm. think it was like t 17 and 10% or around there. Wait, how's that work? So, <laughs> that, that, well, that's what, that, that's, that's exactly, that. that's exactly. And then we asked a separate item about group sex. And this is an example of, gosh, what I would have loved to ask. And what we've actually done in, in some of the other studies is ask about the configurations, who were the, the, the genders, genders of the partners, you know, that sort of thing. But that gets, again, it, it, it adds up on time so quickly when you're asking event level detail about multiple partners. Oh my god! Because there's so many gender combinations, you know, right. for threesomes, you have male, right. male, female, 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 male, but then you have the trans versions, and then male, 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 exactly. and three women, and exactly. Oh so th I, I think you know that in and of itself could be a study. Study just threesomes Event and all the level different threesomes, gender and it should be. It really should be. Mm -hmm. But but we we get to capture you know at least kind of a fifty thousand foot view. So right, and then we can go deeper. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of those numbers for the threesome numbers that came back? Were you surprised, or were you expecting that kind of like twenty percent? Well, you got to remember the yeah. kind of the pack that I hang with. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the sexuality wow. research That's community. That's another show, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I guess you just become so desensitized to these things. Yeah. So it's like, wow, only ten percent. But That's it? but but yeah. you know, I I think that kind of does make sense because when you look at, again at those less commonly assessed behaviors, they t they hovered around ten to twenty percent, and and then there were some like. BDSM party attendance that mm -hmm. was much lower you know that was less than 10% right. and, and and it does I think sh 
show that that those are probably just less typical than the average vaginal, oral, and sometimes anal. And we we, we did find, you know, substantial rates of anal sex in this particular sample. You had asked a little bit about pegging, and we, we have rates of receptive anal sex for men, but we don't have gender of partner. And that's big because we can assume that most of those are probably going to be their male partners for, for guys who have male partners. I know, but, but and you didn't ask for insertive anal sex right, for women. For women, they exactly. They have actually exactly. inserted a, you know, a dildo. A dildo. And, and that, again, is one of those items I would have loved to include, hopefully, in the next one. This whole thing's can. a sham. You guys screwed up. I know. <laughs> I mean, just throw out the whole thing, but Dr. I'll tell Dodge. you, I'll tell you, just, you know, in, in a previous study we did with behaviorally bisexual men, uh, we asked about that with the, the receptive anal sex with female partners. Mm-hmm. And if you think of a group, you know, that might have a higher d- proportion of, of that happening, it was still a, a small, you know, percentage of the sample that had engaged in it. But what was so interesting about that to me was we had one participant, for example, who talked about he had that experience with his girlfriend and then he got curious about receptive anal sex with male partners. Interesting. So, it, so I just... There, it was the gateway. Yeah, the gateway. The gateway pun the pun, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, that is actually interesting. And I think we should definitely have a whole episode yeah, yes. on, on anal sex and um, yes. or, or many. But I've noticed if you're a woman and you have a, a profile on any dating site or hookup site and you say even anything remotely to the extent of being, you know, empowered and strong and independent woman, the number of men very often, you know, typically straight, very masculine, very traditionally masculine men who will come to you and say, um, would you be interested in pegging me? Wow. It's been quite uh, remarkable. That's Are you speaking from experience, Dr. Sharon? <laughs> not, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Ethnographic <laughs> research. Because I didn't see that in the study, so I didn't know. <laughs> that was not in the study. All right. But isn't that a great idea, though, of something, again, to look into in sort of a, maybe not a probability sample, but 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 a, a, like a qualitative study? That, mm. that would be really interesting. I know. And you did have some data here that spoke to that a little bit. I think there was a question about whether you're interested in having your partner put fingers in your yes anus. yeah there were men that were very interested in that yeah. oh right that was in the appealing yeah, yeah, yeah in yeah. the appeal so how did appeal and, and behavior actual yeah. engaged in behavior correlate did As, we have more people wanting to do things than they had done it some but i think kind of as would be expected the the higher rates of appeal uh, tended to cluster with the people who had actually engaged in those mm. behaviors but but there there was some variation and and i think that that's something you know to to look at in a future study too to tease out exactly like what combinations of those are because for a number of reasons because i think you'd also find some potentially unnerving things about mm-hmm. people that engage in behaviors that are absolutely not, not appealing, appealing to them and why are they doing that i was looking at some of the anal sex stuff with yeah. women and there seem to be more women who've had receptive anal sex than the number of women who say they find it appealing right so was it a one-time thing? Was it pressured? Was mm. there, you know, alcohol, drugs involved? So all of those kinds of questions, I think, are are great for a follow-up study. How about pornography? Uh, because I remember back in the day, and you may remember yes. this as well, the only way to get it through is a magazine or your UHF channel through static. You'd be able to see right. some sort of... So now that <laughs> it's so... Spice Network. Yes. So now that it's so prevalent... It's it, changed a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little. It's, so uh, how, did, how, did that, how was that reflected in the study? I mean, the rates of viewing sexually explicit materials online were high 
as would be expected yeah. of, of having done that in lifetime. Lifetime, 82% yeah. of men wow. and 60% of women say that they've yeah. watched a sexually explicit video or DVD. Yeah. 82% of men. What are the other 18% of men doing? Do they not have computers? <laughs> Lying. <laughs> Lying? <laughs> no, I'm just... They're you know, Mormon? I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. or they might just not be into it, but or they might not have found it yet. It is That's a clear example, I think, of from what we would have found, you yeah. know, in our teenage years of just how vast of an impact that the internet right. has had. And of had. course, that's lifetime. Yeah. yeah. And past year, the numbers are much lower. So 25% of women and 50% of men say they've watched porn in the past year, which yeah. might be surprising to yeah. some, right? They're yeah. like, what about the other 50% of men? And right. then in the past month, only 35% of men and 13% of women said that they watched porn. And it's always about 20% off, which is funny, between the male and female sexes, right? <laughs> yeah. You notice that? Yeah. For, this, for this question, at least. Yeah. yeah. You, see the, you see some interesting patterns like that. And then you see in terms of appeal, when we included gender in the model, so we were able to look at differences between men and women. One of the things that was so interesting to me that emerged as more significantly appealing for women was watching an erotic film with a partner. Mm. And then there were quite a few of them for men, like more things that were more appealing for yeah. men. Appealing, not surprising. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think uh, watching a, an erotic film using a vibrator or a dildo, there were there were about five items, I think, that were more, uh, more appealing, appealing for, for women. women. Yeah. And the, another take home, this is one thing that just really fascinated me is that we ask about all these diverse behaviors, but it turns out in terms of appeal for both men and women where there are not real significant gender differences, things like kissing, cuddling, mm. saying affectionate things to your partner, that those are rated as the most appealing, I think does go to show that even with all these other things out there, people do really like intimacy and, and you and know, more standard common behavior, affectionate behavior. Yeah. And yeah. that might not even necessarily be sexual, really, you know, it's just that that closeness. Yeah, some of the top 10 appealing for for men were vaginal intercourse, which is not surprising, receiving oral, having sex more often, watching partner undress, kissing more often during sex, having gentle sex, cuddling more often, mm -hmm. giving oral sex, mm -hmm. having sex in other parts of the house, and having sex in a hotel room. So those are the top 10 that men rated as very appealing. Interesting. And that's a kind of a mix of things that you might think, oh, it's more on the adventurous side, but then you know, five or six of those cuddling. items are cuddling, kissing, <laughs> and having gentle sex, not yeah. rough sex. Having right. rough sex is not one of the top 10. Right. I wish guys talked more about that. Well, we do have a lot of technology. How about sending photos, uh, explicit photos to one we, another? We've got rates mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. <laughs> we've got an app for that. Yeah. So sending nude or semi-nude photos of self, 24% of men and 27% of women wow. have ever That's done that. And receiving, 40% of men and 27% of women received a nude photo of someone. Interesting. So actually more men yeah. received naked photos than women did so well, makes all sense. the dick pics yeah i know but we're all complaining about dick pics and it seems, it seems. not all of us <laughs> not all of us that's true some of us actually like dick pics but mm. but honestly I, that that's another area that just opens up so many different issues in terms of confidentiality and privacy and people that have had negative experiences mm. with that and then you know i've got three criminal defense lawyers in my family so the one of the first things that comes to my mind is how young people under the age of 18 
oh my God, yeah. who we didn't include in the sample, but I think would might even have higher rates oh, yeah. than that, but who are now being labeled as, you know, with, as a sex, sex offender because they're caught doing that. And our laws haven't caught up to the technology at all. Right. This study is really kind of the first step in a lot of other work that needs to be done yeah. and a lot of just kind of pointing out things that we should explore in greater depth. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing to have those baseline rates finally. I know. Right? I know. It is. And, and now that you have these, doctor, I mean, when do you go back and do this again? Like, <laughs> no, I'm just curious. Like, do you well, wait five years? No, do you wait three years? Mm-hmm. I mean, what is, you know, what is the I work think, for that? Well, we do the NSSHB annually. So, the, and, and that's the more standard right, questions. Right. Right. Yeah. And anytime we can get additional funding to stitch together, we can include more items and things. And we, we may, as a result of this, end up expanding the battery of questions that we ask and just the, the standard stuff. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, of this, I think, again, it would just finding another innovative funder who might be interested in seeing like, and, and it might be two years, three yeah. years, but but just how are, are there shifts over time? Hmm. And are those really dramatic? Be um, nice to have it every five years yeah. or something like that. It seems like you'd have to do this like every six months because I feel like this world changes so fast. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's true. It's like Can't how what, what we find offensive may not be offensive six months from now yeah. or maybe more offensive six months from now or acceptable or unacceptable, you know? Well, I mean, look at the White House. But yeah. There's a <laughs> lot of norms yeah. changing. Every day. <laughs> Almost overnight. Um, I just wanted to mention briefly about the journal in which this was published. So this was published in PLOS One, and it's a bit of a different kind of academic journal than most of the other journals where we publish. Was the open access nature of it part of the reason why you published it there? With this paper, yes, because I think, again, we knew that the appeal would would be broad and we had funds set aside to, mm-hmm. to be able to do that because open access has a fee associated with it. And that the which researchers is, have to pay exactly, to get it published exactly, in an open access sort of exactly. way. So it's not which, behind a paywall. Which isn't, it, it, it's not exorbitant. It's $1,500 for PLOS. Mm-hmm. And if you can build those costs into your grants, you know, up front, then again, that that is, I would say, has been infinitely worth it just in terms of this article has had 28,000 views and downloads wow. already. 28,000 yeah. downloads. Good job. That never yeah. happens with well, academic I know. And, papers. And, and, and another paper. If you get like 40, you're like, <laughs> well, another. And that's two of those are like your mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, exactly. <laughs> or yourself can right. continually right. downloading it. Refresh. Yeah. yeah. Just as a, as a comparative example, we did another paper, but it was looking at attitudes toward bisexual men and women which is interesting but that article over the course of a year had about 3,000 that was also open access and plus that was in the Mm -hmm. same journal and that was over a year yeah so but this is like 28,000 over a year compared to that and it hasn't even been a year yet it's relatively recently so let's Monday morning quarterback it I want you to do it what do you wish you could have done with this study that you didn't get a chance to (laughs) jeez that's a hard question is there something once a study was printed and it was out there like i wish i did that you know there's always the oh gosh i wish i would have asked more what are the configurations of partners and group sex and and gender so more detail you would more detail for sure it's challenging thinking about the sort of 14 to 17 year old like sending and receiving explicit pictures Mm -hmm. sexually explicit media use those types of things i think that would be really interesting i'm also curious to see uh, over time how things 
change in if there is another installment of Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know. Is there yeah. uh, by film? One more. I mean, there's one more. There's one more. Yeah. So we're going to have to pound the pavement for some <laughs> funding because that that would be really interesting to. Although I wonder if the whatever impact it had, it yeah. already had it. Yeah. There's always a new generation of people who haven't seen it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and you have to remember that because I know I'm dating myself here just in, but remember I was a child, you know, back in the 90s when I was in college and Body of Evidence with sure. Madonna came like, out. Defoe, and there yeah. was Right. So there, there's always cyclically these things where people are like, oh, this Basic is Basic Instinct new. was back then. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which I thought, you know, it was a great movie, but, mm-hmm. but it, it's always like each generation sort of has these mm-hmm. and I think there will be another moment for for exploring this in, in okay. popular culture. Whenever I talk about sex surveys and, and self-report data on sex, people always say, well, how can you trust that? People are just lying. Yeah. Can you address a little bit, um, you know, how much we can trust this data and um, what measures you took to try and get people to be honest? Yeah. So obviously, I think that's an issue just inherent with self-reported social and behavioral science research across the board. And with sexuality in particular, I I mean, another way could possibly be to do direct observation, right? Like like (laughs) Masters and Johnson did in their lab studies. But again, we're we're, we're not going to be able to do that on a large scale and to give people lie detector tests and things. So (laughs) I think we have to trust that that people will take surveys like this seriously and that will be open and honest and always understand, you know, there might be some small margin of error, but there's been countless studies that have, have looked at, you know, kind of validating self-report for self-reported Sex research, research mm-hmm. into, in, in sexuality. And I don't think, particularly with a knowledge panel like this, especially that's accustomed to doing research that knows that the data are confidential, that knows that they can trust the researchers, I would feel highly confident that people are self-reporting as accurately as they can their mm-hmm. their honest and and, and uh, truthful sexual behaviors. That also brings up though things like recall bias, bias. things mm-hmm. like people event not level, remembering. not remember th- event level s- situations like substance use and alcohol use, all of that. But again, we just have to take that in as best we can, and that, that probably overall some people are going to underreport, right. others yeah. are going to overreport, and all kind of cancels. We hope that out. yeah, we hope and we hope that you know 0.05 level of of confidence that we that we can have that that there might be a small margin of error but that it's going to be relatively small wow okay thank you this has been (laughs) so fascinating and um you have a lot other project going on you just got and congratulations on Uh, that you just got a grant from the national institute of health to study bisexual men Um, that's gonna be really something that's looking at self-identified bisexual men in mental health health disparities and that was originally something i wanted to do during my postdoc so i'm almost uh, almost uh yeah over over 10 years ago now i'll say i won't go too much further than that but it was well over 10 years right here in new york city at columbia it was a good learning experience for me not to have had that opportunity at the time and to have to understand the whole you know kind of how the focus on sexual risk focus on behavior identity is fuzzy you know Mm -hmm. all of that it was it was good to be schooled in that way i think but the fact to now at this time have the opportunity to do that and again at a time when the political situation you know is 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 really dire in some ways i'm really grateful 
That's really great. great. Congratulations. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And we're grateful, Dr. Dodge. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I hope it can come back again sometime We'd love soon. to have you back, yeah. <laughs> Talk about bisexuality, anal That'd sex. That'd be great. Yeah. Yep. Sign me up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. This Week in Sex Science. A therapist says he is astonished by a university's decision to stop him from studying people who decide to reverse gender reassignment operations. Wait a minute. Hold on. I was just getting this whole gender reassignment thing. Now there's reversals of this? <laughs> yes, there are sometimes. Okay. So even though the majority of people who do go through gender reassignment procedures or better called these days gender confirmation surgeries, uh, most of them are happy with that mm-hmm. and remain happy with that for the rest of their lives. But every now and then there are people who regret it and decide that they want to revert back to their uh, sex assigned at birth. So, this, so that's what we're talking about So this here. professor, he wanted to ask these people who regretted the uh, gender reassignment, but the school kiboshed it? Kind of, yeah, that's exactly what happened. I believe he was a, a master's student or a graduate student who wanted to study, yeah, kind of ask people what is going on, why they're regretting, why they're turning back. And Bath Spa University in the UK basically said, no, because we don't think it's going to look good on our PR. It's politically incorrect to be talking about these things. But isn't that what studies are for, to to find information? Why wouldn't you want to find this information out? I know, and that is what is pretty disconcerting, I think, in this case, that universities are now deciding to quash academic freedom in terms of what you can and cannot study because you might piss some people off. So it's normal because you've done studies. So it's normal for universities to turn down any kind of assignments. But when it comes to PR, have you ever seen this before that they, they're not doing it because of that? <laughs> I don't know. This is the first time certainly in this kind of area that I've seen this happen. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not happy about this because we as researchers, as academics, should have the freedom to study things, especially if it involves full consent of everybody involved in the research. And in this case, you would would have consent by the people who you're studying to study that. It's not like you're deceiving them into... Because right, what universities always do when there is a psychological research about to happen, you have to get an approval from the ethics committee. And they will make sure that what you're doing is ethical, is not going to harm people, is not going to manipulate them into doing something you know that they're not aware that they're doing and, and get harmed by that. Right. So those are good things to right. have that sort of oversight. But in this case, that's not the case. You know, it's, so we're not you- harming anybody in the process. So these oversight committees, they look into it, like you mentioned, all those lists of factors. And the fact that they're placing PR as an importance to a scientific research seems inherently wrong. Like, it just doesn't seem like it's a good mm-hmm. enough reason. Like, couldn't they have lied? Couldn't they have said, <laughs> hey, listen, we didn't want to go in this direction. It's, it doesn't fit or something like that. But it seems like it's silly for them to out themselves for being kind of like shortchanging the, the people because this could do a lot of help because you're, you're hearing more and more people getting gender reassignment surgery and the fact that there's probably a small percentage that regret it, just like any mm-hmm. kind of surgery. Yeah, and you would if ideally like to learn who are the people who are most likely to regret it, right? This kind of research can help you figure out maybe ahead of time before they go through this very lengthy process of surgeries and treatments and all that, who might regret it and then, you know, maybe... Yeah, because they could break it down to age groups, you know, race, anything they could. That, right, that's, how you feel about it when when uh, there was an onset of. Yeah, there's so many different factors. Yeah, that could play a role. So I don't know. It's uh, it's 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 pretty concerning to me that this is what we're dealing with now. But I think we live in a society that is becoming increasingly more politically correct or worried about political correctness mm-hmm. because of the backlash that you know something that is perceived by some group as un PC might have, and it's. 
infiltrating universities, I think, more and more. It's a lot to unpack. And a lot to unpack for one show. Our first show's done. <laughs> Woohoo. We survived it. But we did. Should we come back next week for another episode? I think so, because <laughs> what do we, got? we have something really interesting happening that kind of sounds like science fiction insects research, but it's not science fiction. New study finds that artificial intelligence can determine a person's sexual orientation from facial photographs. What does this mean for gay people? And what if this technology falls in the wrong hands? That's a moral dilemma we'll discuss next week with Dr. Michal Kosinski. And we'll do that next week on The Science of Sex. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, follow them on Science of Sex Podcast or on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast. This has been The Science of Sex. 